Today's interview is brought to you by Algorand. You'll be hearing more about them as well as Decipher 2022, their event in Dubai, later on in the show. But for now, let's get on with today's interview. It is the afternoon of Wednesday, November 2nd. Fed Chair Jay Powell just spoke at 2.30 p.m. Before that, we got uh, the statement from the uh, FOMC, the Federal Reserve, at 2 p.m. And I am joined by two experts, uh, Joseph Wang and Jim Bianco. Uh, Jim, you're at Bianco Research. Joseph, you used to to be a senior trader for the Federal Reserve, and you're the author of uh, Central Banking 101. Guys, great to have you here. I want to hear just your your general top level thoughts. What did you make of this? Because the market's kind of you know uh, spinning spinning going a little haywire. Jim, how about we start with you? Yeah, I I'm going to use a phrase that I heard um, John Farrow say on Bloomberg TV, which I think summed it up perfectly. It's no longer about the journey; it's about the destination. And what that means is, is the Fed going to hike fifty or seventy five at the next meeting? It, it doesn't matter. It's about the terminal rate. Where are they going to end the rate hikes? And he made it very clear he thinks that's much higher. And the market, if you look at the Fed Fund futures, is now pricing in a terminal rate between five and five and a quarter. So we've, and they just raised rates 75 basis points today to 375 to four. There's 150 basis points of rate hikes to go if the market of pricing holds. Now, if they want to raise rates 150 basis points in December or they want to do 625s over the next six months, that's where we're going. That's what I think was the cold slap in the face to like the stock market. There's a lot more rate hikes coming and the composition of how they get there is not as important as where they're going. Yeah, I agree. I agree complete with Jim. And I think one thing. So I think two things happened at this press conference that I think are important. The first is that there's an extra sentence in the press release, Jack, as you've pulled up. So that extra sentence was initially taken by the market to be dovish. What the sentence seems to suggest is that the, the Fed maybe might shift downshift from 75 to maybe 50 basis points hike f- for December. And the market initially took that as some sort of a pivot, some sort of a dovish move. But Chair Powell really set things straight. And Chair Powell reiterated uh, Jim Bianco's point. That is, it's not about you know, how, how the, the pace, but it's really about the destination. That's much more important. And he was unequivocal, as Jim mentioned, that the, pay, the, the ultimate destination is much higher. And as an aside, you know, I, I thought this was Powell's best press conference so far. He seemed so confident, like he was his own man. I mean, he really handled the situation well. I mean, I, I've watched him since his first press conference, and uh, I think this was his best so far, but he was very unequivocal, and he reiterated his points several t- uh, multiple times. You know, this is not a pause, and we think that rates are going to have to go higher. And by the market's calculation, it seems like we do have, uh, you know, as Jim mentioned, about 150 or so basis points to go. You know, if I could jump if I could jump in, and I'm going to ask uh, uh, Joseph about that that sentence that they added. The, the phrase that got everybody excited before the press conference was the term cumulative tightening, and that that was meant to mean that they were going to look at the three or 400 basis points of tightening that they've done, and that maybe they would pause and let that kind of sink in, and that was before the uh, the press conference. That most likely came from Lael Brainerd because she used that exact phrase or nearly that exact phrase uh, a couple of weeks ago in a speech. 
And the scuttlebutt was there are a bunch of unhappy doves at the Fed. Maybe Mary Daly, a San Francisco Fed. Maybe Charlie Evans, Chicago Fed. Lael Brainerd, the vice chairman. And they were ready to dissent. And Chairman Powell did not want to dissent because then that would look like the, the more messiness because of the way the Fed works. So he threw that line in there to kind of get them to at least vote this meeting. The market misinterpreted that line as a pivot. And then I think he's like you said, Joseph, they set them straight then during the press conference. But I think that that's what that line was about, is that under the hood, there's not unanimous agreement at the Fed as to what they should be doing. But Jay Powell's the chairman and the chairman gets what he wants. So that what's what's circled in red there, uh, just just on screen, is a line from the statement uh, this November's FOMC meeting that was not from the September uh, FOMC meeting. Pretty much everything else is, is very very similar, and it's the, the the quote is quote in determining the pace of future increases in the target range, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. So there you go, sort of a, the three part cocktail. Number one is the cumulative tightening, meaning we've already tightened so much, as Jim you, you just said. Secondly is the lag with which monetary policy affects economic activity. Oh, if you hike interest rates in in May of 2022. It might not affect you know economic activity until January of 2023, or, or probably much much later. Um, and then economic and financial developments—they're really sort of hedging their bets, saying you know any, anything that happens, uh, you know we, we can we can change our minds. Um, yeah, I actually looked, uh, and it was quite a, a exhaustive look uh, to see when the Fed's the last time the Federal Reserve used the phrase lags in the statement, and it was uh, I believe 2006, uh, which is interesting. But uh, Joseph, what were you going to say? No, you know, on this point, so the conventional wisdom is that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. That's standard central bank speak. And I think Paul was asked about this today, and he seemed to a bit more ambivalent about this idea. He noted, rightly noted, that, you know, the way that monetary policy works today is actually the market anticipates what the Fed is going to do. And when it anticipates what the Fed is going to do, it's immediately priced into markets. So when the Fed hikes, it's the, the tightening is already there. And, you know, maybe the lags are not what it used to be, especially since our economy is a lot more financialized. So I think there, I think he's uh, maybe not completely convinced by the standard long and variable lags part of uh, how monetary policy acts. I'll underscore that and say that that's exactly what I took away from that, too, in that this whole idea that, yes, I'll give the, the doves the cumulative effect with the lag, but he doesn't think there's much of a lag. He's, you're right. We're such a financialized economy. It's already priced in. It, the effect is, or he even said there's been some recent papers that suggest that the lag might not be very much at all. If he's thinking that way, he's not worried that the economy is about to crater because of what they've already done. It's already in the market. He's, that's why he's plowing ahead thinking we've got much more to go. He's not worried about what's happened. He's explicitly noted that he felt that the, uh, the markets and the economy were handling the rate hikes well. So it seems like that gives him confidence he can continue to go. Um, I want to go back to Jim's point about the agreement on the FOMC because I think that's a really, really important point going forward. So the FOMC likes to present a unified view, but going forward, it's going to be more and more difficult to, to have consensus because you're going to have doves who 
point out things. And right now, we're still at a time where the economy is strong, where unemployment continues to you know, be at multi-decade lows. Eventually, maybe in a few months from now, we're going to have unemployment tick up. It's going to be a little bit more difficult call between inflation and, and full employment. And those doves, they're going to get a lot louder. So it's going to get a lot harder to get uh, unanimity on, on the um, FOMC. So th- I think that's, that's, that's what we should watch for going forward. And I know Jim has a very interesting view. Jim, who do you think is the most hawkish person on the FOMC? Jay Powell. I think he is the most hawkish person right now. And I think that he is leading the charge with everybody else. I think with him is probably Chris Waller, a Fed governor, and Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed. But I do think that, you know, if you were to do that hawk dove thermometer that people do, I'd put him all the way over on the uh, side of being the most hawkish person. I agree. I agree. So that's why we have the messaging we have today. He's he's trying to do what needs to be done and stay until the job is done, basically. So... uh the markets really liked that extra sentence in the statement, which was released at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And there was a brief moment of hope in the market where uh, interest rates fell sharply, pricing in not a Fed pivot, but a, a moderation in forward prices. Uh, but the Powell dispelled them of, of, of that notion and interest rates actually rose. And uh, now interest rates are you know even higher than they were before this meeting. And uh, the the S&P 500 stocks are the mirror image of that where they rallied. And, and now actually the S&P 500 is down 2% uh, on, on the day of November 2nd. So, Jim, this is the two-year Treasury yield with sort of a basic uh, chart. But I know you, uh, at Bianco Research, you've got these fantastic charts just showing what's going on in the bond market. So tell us about what happened with the terminal rate. Uh, that is the, the the highest point that the market is pricing the Fed will, will get to. Because I think that you know it started out it, – it's kind of a mirror image of that. But it's, it's really interesting um, just to show the, the developments today. Yeah, so the terminal rate, um, for those of you that want to know how you could calculate it, there's a couple of ways you could do it, but probably the simplest is look at the Fed Fund futures contracts, October, November, December, January, February, March of 23, all the way on out. What is the highest point on that curve? And this is a chart that I do. I did it in Excel just so everybody gets an idea what you're looking at. It's equal max, the function equal max. Where is the highest point in the curve? And it was 510. When I drew it about a half an hour ago, and the bottom line in green shows you what month that occurs in. And what's interesting about the chart is the terminal rate has been in an uptrend, 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 basically since summer. It was still in the mid threes in the, in summer. Now we're already at 4% on the funds rate. And now it's already above 5%. But what else is very interesting is the market, with a couple of exceptions here, is pretty much locked into this idea that the Fed will be done in around April or May with with raising rates, that that's going to be the time of the terminal rate. That doesn't change, but the rate itself does change. Now, prior to this meeting, this was kind of a wonky thing that, you know, Fed geeks like me and Joseph look at and a lot of other people weren't really focused on that much. But I think coming out of this meeting... This terminal rate, this is really what we're going to have to focus on. How much they raise in December is, like I said before, almost doesn't matter. It's where are they going? And probably going to get there by April or May is what the market says. And the last thing I'll say about this is this is a forward curve. And my standard retort about all forward curves are 
They're really important because they tell you what the market thinks and what the market is pricing. This market is pricing a terminal rate of five to five and a quarter. That does not mean, so therefore that's what will happen. Markets get terminal rates wrong all the time, but they're not useless because they tell you what is priced in, what is expected. And what this chart shows, that blue line going up, is that the market continually expects more and more and more of a or a higher, higher, higher terminal rate. Why do I think it expects a higher and higher terminal rate? Two things. One, the inflation rate is really not moderating that much. We're still above 8% and it's already November. Uh, and yeah, it might come down and I suspect it will come down, but it's been very slow to come down. And two, the economy is not really showing signs of really getting hit. Now, I agree with Joseph, maybe in the spring, that'll be a different story. But in November of 2022, the day we're recording earlier today, we got the ADP report, 239,000 jobs were reported. We've got about that as the expectation for Friday's payroll report. That's not an economy in trouble that is producing 250-ish thousand jobs a month. Economists think that based on population growth and everything else, we need to produce about 50 or 75,000 jobs just to meet that. So if that continues to be the case, that we are seeing okay numbers, you know, initial claims have been in a downtrend since August. If that continues, then there's no reason for the Fed to stop and that terminal rate will keep going up. And unless an inflation rate really starts coming down, and as we're recording, it hasn't yet, maybe it does, but the Fed's not going to anticipate that. They're going to wait for it to happen before they consider a change in course. Yeah, as uh, Joseph, as Jim mentioned, the ADP report came out. People who had workers who had switched jobs, their wages are up. I think fifteen point two percent. People who stayed in the stayed in the same job, it's up seven point seven percent. Not exactly a re recipe for deflation or, or maybe even disinflation. Do you think that report that came out today? Give it gave a little bit of, of uh, you know, uh, pep in his step, uh, Powell, when, it, when he's going out and talking to the reporters to really, really talk hawkish and uh, let the market know that he, that he was serious. So I think not just that, though, if you recall the jolts data just yesterday also kind of ticked up a little bit. I think Powell's takeaway from this is that looking across many different labor market indicators is that the labor market continues to be very, very strong and it doesn't really seem to be softening. And. You know, if it doesn't soften, that means that wages continue to go higher. That gives people more money to spend on goods and services. And so it makes the Fed's job really difficult. Um, so I think that as long as the labor market is strong, that, you know, as you suggested, Jack, that Powell has the confidence to continue to, uh, to tighten. Uh, Fed, you know, has two mandates, full employment and price stability. As the labor market remains strong, that full employment mandate is met. So all they have to do is focus on inflation, and that's through raising the federal funds rate. And Jack, you put up the chart of average hourly earnings. Um, <clears throat> I put that in the package here because Jay Powell mentioned this specific statistic. That is the orange line in the bottom, the year-over-year -year change of average hourly earnings, which has been roughly around five, in the low 5% range for over a year. The bars in the top are the monthly changes, which have consistently been like three-tenths, four-tenths, a couple of five-tenths in there as well. And what Jay Powell said is, and I'll, I'll, I'll summarize what he said, if you're going to see, at least by this measure, average hourly earnings at 
consistently, he said that's too high for a 2% inflation target. In other words, if everybody's getting a 5% raise, according to the average hour earnings, you can pay 5% inflation. And we will be stuck with an inflation rate close to 5%. Maybe not quite there, maybe four and a half or five, but way above two is what that is. So his when he looks at data like this, and as you mentioned, EDP is a smaller sample set. It's a little bit of a different skew, but it had much, much higher inflation numbers. These are, like you said, if, if you get a 5% raise, you can pay 5% inflation. We're not going to have 2% inflation in that world. We need wages to go down, wage inflation to go down in order to have inflation go down. And so when he looks at this, he doesn't see any reason to stop uh, right now. And if we don't have a financial crisis and we don't have any signs that the economy is slowing, there's also no reason for him to stop. And I think that was the slap in the face that the stock market got today from this press conference. On the labor front, one thing I thought was interesting was that he mentioned that you know, year to date, we basically had 0% real GDP growth. Yet at the same time, we're creating jobs every month. So what are all those people doing? I mean, how do we have all these millions of people employed but no GDP growth? It seems to suggest that you know, productivity is very poor. And that, again, is, is not good for inflation. Not only is it very poor, I was just I was smirking here because I was saying the productivity numbers are the worst numbers they've been since World War II that if you produce 250,000 jobs a month and you get no GDP growth, it seems like every one of those workers is wasted. I mean, why are we hiring these people if we can't increase the gross domestic product of the country? And so a lot of people question, and Joseph, I'll throw this at you. A lot of people said, there's got to be something wrong here. We are not the most unproductive we've been in the last 80 years right now. Or are we the most unproductive we've been in the last 80 years. Do you think this is a measurement problem or do you think we actually have a real productivity problem right now? Um, so I'll confess something. So when I was working from home, I was spending half the day watching Netflix. So I wonder if there are more people like me out there. <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, that's, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. Maybe, maybe that is a, is a real problem. Although if we are all sitting at home watching Netflix and not really working, it's not showing up in corporate earnings because these companies are having no problems making money um, in this environment either. Right. Maybe that's part of it. Jim, to what degree is it, though, that real GDP is negative, inflation-adjusted GDP, nominal GDP is high? Maybe it's just the workers who are added, they are adding value. It's just that the value that they're earning, they're adding, is not nearly as much as the supply shock, which, you know, Joseph and I, we, we like to make fun of uh, the supply shock narrative a little bit but you know there there definitely is you know tons of supply driven inflation uh perhaps you know it's greater than 50% and that is sort of eroding the pro the productivity gains of of the workers um oh no there there it it definitely is the case i mean as far as the supply shock goes um i i also kind of make fun of it as well too because there's a lot more going on with inflation um than the supply shock and so we're going to have to see some real signs that the demand side of the equation is coming in as well before we start to really talk at all about a pivot. I know I'm kind of pushing one narrative here, but I'm trying to give the people a sense of why the market took this as a cold slap in the face and that they are, it's something that they weren't expecting. You could see it from the reaction in the stock market today. I want to ask you both, if 
the path doesn't matter. It's all about the destination. Forget the journey, to, to quote Jonathan Farrow. Uh, Jim, why, why not do 75 basis points? If you're going to go to 5% or even 525, 550, why not? Uh, why not do 75 basis points? It seems to me like, the, you know, if I wanted to uh, make the market think that I was going to hike more than I was, I would do exactly what Jay Powell did today, which is say, don't worry about the journey. Just worry about the destination. Uh, what do you think, uh, Jim and then Joseph? Yeah, just real quick. Jim Bullard, the St. Louis Fed Reserve President, has been saying exactly that. Let's let's get to that terminal rate as soon as possible, and then let's hold there. Let's not drag this out for a year and a half to get to that level. Um, you know, maybe they should just raise 150 basis points in December and say, now we're done. Now we're done. We'll just hold here all year, and we'll see what happens. But yeah, I think there is an argument to be made just get there instead of just torturing everybody all the way through. Jack, I think they agree with you. That's that's part of the reason why they're doing 75. I think we really got to remember last year, many people thought the Fed wouldn't hike. And if they hiked, maybe they'd do 25. Now they're doing 75. And, you know, that that's kind of a big, big leap. So they are trying to get to um, what they think of as their terminal rate as, as soon as possible. But... I think also that, as Jim suggested earlier, it's harder to get more and more people on the FOMC on board to these supersized hikes. So that's probably also part of it. Some people there want to slow down, want to see if uh, monetary policy is feeding through to the real economy, which is well that extra sentence we see in the statement. So that compromise might be uh, just to, you know, maybe get there a little bit slower than the Chair Powell might want to. Uh, from my own perspective, though, I think if you do act too fast, you do risk uh, the market not being able to adjust and maybe some kind of financial accident. You know, if you were suddenly to hike like, you know, 200, 300 basis points a day, uh, some people might get caught off sides. There might be margin calls. You could have some disorder in the market. And that's that's no good for anyone. Might as well, instead of just doing 100, maybe just do 75 and 25, 50, 50. An extra six weeks really doesn't make that big of a difference. Yeah, I, I want to get into the wonky bond math and the uh, infamous Powell yield curve, which is extremely close to to inverting. But first, I just want to go for you uh, a few points, which I feel like you know people listening who didn't pay as much attention to this as, as you know the three of us did because it's, it's our job um, um, should know about. Which is the the real sort of hawkish quote was that to think to to pause would be very premature. Powell used those words and he, he said it quite forcefully. Uh, he also mentioned that the terminal rate is higher than uh, they indicated in the September FOMC meeting where they actually put out their projections with a dot plot where there it was about 4.6%. So they're saying if we did, we didn't put out a dot plot today, but if we did, it would have been higher, maybe 4.8, maybe 4.9, maybe who knows, 5.1. And uh, the, the market went to, to, to 5.1. Um, and then just two, two other questions that, you know, if you, you guys want to comment on this, just just interrupt me and, and you, you can talk about it. But uh, reporters tried to get him to, to ease up. And it's like, but but Jay, you know, what about the housing market? I mean, mortgage rates have gone up so much. And, uh, you know, are you worried you're going to screw up the housing market? And Jay Powell was like, no. And then he was like, but the U.N., Jay Powell, the U.N. is calling you. They're, they're issuing saying the Fed needs to stop raising rates. And I think. Jay Powell either ignored the question completely or just said no as well. So, uh, yeah, Powell, Powell was unperturbed. Um, all right, so now let's go on into the wonky bond math. This is really my, my favorite part, and I smiled when uh, uh, Mike McKee from Bloomberg asked this question. So months ago, maybe you guys can correct me on the date, 
you know, Powell was asked about, oh, the yield curve inverted. Aren't you worried about that? And the reporter was talking about, you know, what most people, what I talk about is the inversion between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury, and that uh, two-year rates were higher than 10-year rates, so that spread uh, was inverted. And then Powell said, oh, no, don't worry about that. What I focus on is the 18th-month forward three-month treasury bill minus the spot treasury bill. When that inverts, there's a 100% chance of recession, and there you know, the Fed, the Fed should be pivoting. Well, that spread is extremely close to to inverting now, uh, a handful of basis points away from, from zero, from, from inverting. And Jim, you actually, you know, we're really lucky to get to get this on forward guidance and the audience is lucky to see this. I'm lucky to see this. Um, you made a very up-to-date uh, spread of this new Fed yield curve today as of uh, today. So yeah, right. Jim, walk us through the history. Did, did, did I miss anything? And uh, what, what did you think of, of Jay Powell's answer to, to Mike McKee's question? So yeah, let me just walk you through the chart. Um, the orange line that you're looking at is this 18-month forward, three-month spot yield curve. Now, what is that? Uh, the way I like to say this is with the interest rate market, you can construct a bunch of forward yields. The simplest way I can explain it to people is we know that there's a two-year yield and we know that there's a one-year yield. And we could back into what one-year yield do we need in one year to equal the two-year yield. So the market can we can impute from the market what will be the one-year rate in one year. That's just a simple example. In this case, we are going to take you know, the 21-month yield and the 18-month yield, and we're going to impute what do we think the three-month bill yield will look like in 18 months and compare it to the current three-month bill yield, and that's what this yield curve is. And when it inverts, that's what Jay Powell said is 100% track record. Now, <clears throat> for those of you that are listening, boy, that's a complicated thing, and I, I don't know how to find that and where to figure it out. So I put the blue line on the chart. That's a simpler yield. That's the two-year yield minus the three-month yield. And you can see it, it tracks pretty closely with this Jay Powell new Fed curve that we have on the, there. So if you wanted to track something that approximates this, that you could probably figure out yourself, just look at the two-year yield minus the three-month yield. It's pretty, pretty close. And what it shows is that both of those yields are very, very close to zero. Uh, the three-month tenure, which is one that's a very popular one with economists, inverted earlier this week. And it's just only for a couple of days has been inverted. Now, what is it supposed to signal to us when it inverts? It's supposed to signal that the market thinks that rates are too, the Fed is too tight, that rates in the future are supposed to be, uh, that they're, they're too tight. That's why the yield curve inverts, that current rates are higher than what we think future rates are going to be. But we're not quite there yet. And that was kind of part of Jay Powell's question to Mike McKee was, well, this is very close to inverting and it's 100% record for a recession. And aren't you worried? And his answer was, well, it's not there yet. Call me when it is, even though we're only 20 basis points away. Um, you know, um, it reminds me of the old joke about what does the window washer say when he falls off the scaffolding, he passes the third floor. So far, so good. And that's kind of what Jay was saying. So far, so good. Yeah, but Jay, we know what's coming next uh, here. And, and this curve is probably going to Invert, But that would be a signal that the Fed is being too restrictive. Now, what's interesting about that is as of November 2nd, it's not yet flashing that the Fed has been too tight. Now, maybe it does 
in the next couple of weeks or next month or so, that it gives us a solid signal that the Fed is too tight. But we're not quite there just yet. And that was kind of part of his answer, at least what I thought, (coughs) excuse me, what I thought his answer was. Is that, uh, yeah, that's a concern, but we're not there yet. Call me when it's a concern. I don't yeah, know. Joseph, it was six basis points that have inverted a week ago, so very close to, to uh, zero. Joseph, what did you make of this whole interaction? You know, I, I recall towards the end of that, his answer to that question, he kind of seemed like he just had a shrugged his shoulders a little bit. You know, he's like, I, I don't really care. Yeah, <laughs> so he that, ended that's, by yeah, saying, that's I'm, my answer, which I'm, is yeah. kind of the right, way. Yeah. Right. I, I'm racing rates and don't give me a reason to stop here. Yeah. That, that's always been my, my sense that they don't actually care about the shape of the euro curve. And I can understand why. I mean, it's, it's hard to place a lot of confidence in market signals when, for example, one of your major policy tools is going out and buying bonds to make sure that the, the, the rates are lower than they otherwise would be. So um, if you're, one of your policy tools is to manipulate the yield curve, then obviously you are, I think, more thoughtful when you, when you try to derive signals from it. Right. And you know, the yield curve does have a good track record of inverting before recessions, but there are different ones that invert at different time horizons. So for example, the two-year, 10-year spread, that inverts like, oh, you know, it's 12 months to maybe 18 months before a recession, and that inverted earlier this year. The three-month, 10-year inverts earlier, and this new Powell yield curve that he, he likes so much, that inverts like, you know, a few months before a recession, or maybe, maybe perhaps already in one. We interrupt this program with breaking news. Algorand is hosting an event in Dubai from November 28th through November 30th, and I am going to be there. Decipher 2022 is a gathering of investors, developers, and founders featuring deep dives on blockchain's most important topics, interoperability, DeFi, sports, gaming, and the metaverse. It's an unparalleled learning opportunity. You need to be there. Think about it. You're going to be coming from Thanksgiving. Your family members are going to be wondering why you won't stop talking about the Federal Reserve. This is exactly what you need to stay in the most beautiful city in the world and meet and learn from leaders in the blockchain industry. By the way, if you are there, I will talk macro with you. So get a ticket today and come hang out with me in Dubai. Tickets are available now at decipherevent.com. And for a limited time, you can use code decipherfam22 for a discount on your pass. That's decipherevent.com. There is a live stream, so if you can't be there in Dubai, you can watch it remotely. However, there are certain things you'll only get to know if you're there in person, such as, will I remember to bring Sunblack? If you ask me about how the reverse repo facility actually works, will I pretend to know the answer, or will I be honest and say I have no clue? Decipher is hosted by Algorand, the world's most secure, scalable, and sustainable blockchain. Founded by Silvio Macaulay, the co-inventor of Zero Knowledge Proofs, Algorand recently partnered with FIFA to launch FIFA Plus Collect, the league's official NFT marketplace. With the World Cup going on in Qatar at this time, there are sure to be a ton of eyes and attention on that. So clearly there is a lot going on, not just for the Algorand ecosystem, but in the region more generally. So go to decipherevent.com. It's going to be a great event, and I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to the interview. I don't know if people asked, you know, people did ask, are you, are you worried about a recession? And uh, Powell's answer to that was interesting. But I particularly want to draw attention to someone said, a reporter great, uh, asked a great question, which is, is a soft landing still possible? And Powell said, soft landing, has the pro- probability of it narrowed? Yes. But is it still possible? Yes. What do you guys think of that? You know, I, I'm not as deep into the economic data as, as Jim is, so I'm going to defer to him. But, you know, his arguments seem to be that so inflation is more, uh, is, is, is more sticky than we thought, and so we're going to have to hike rates higher. And his reasoning is that when you hike rates higher, it becomes less likely for you, 
to get a soft landing. And that, that makes sense to me. I mean, when you hike, maybe, maybe the impact of rate hikes are, is not linear. So maybe when you get to, let's say, five and above, you suddenly slow the economy a lot, and that blunt tool might, might make a soft landing less likely. But yeah, it, so far, it doesn't seem to be working. I mean, there, there are reasons to think that the U.S. economy may actually be quite resilient. It certainly looks that way to me so far. But, you know, uh, Jim, what do you think? No, I agree. I think that um, he is not as concerned about a soft landing as he is about inflation. And yes, it's always possible that until you have a recession, it's always possible that you can have a soft landing. But if anybody's ever played poker, you can always have it. You can always pull it inside straight. But good luck trying to do that at the poker table. It's really a lot harder than it sounds just to say it. And that's almost what the Fed is trying to do right now. Um, And so, yeah, okay, maybe we're going to get a soft landing. But I think what's been happening here, and I'll I'll direct this to you, Joseph. I'm going to throw out the big picture thing. And that chart you had up a second ago of um, the uh, forward curve, that one right there. I'll start by explaining this this chart. That black line on there is CPI, um, monthly CPI. And all those colored lines... Every month, Bloomberg does a survey of economists, about 70 of them. And they ask them, what do you think the inflation rate is going to be over the next six quarters? And that's the median for every quarter. What is the pattern you see in this chart? Wherever the inflation rate is, in six quarters, it's going to be 2%. You know, as it has gone up for the last 18 months, every month is this is the high, we're going right back to 2%. This is the high, we're going right back to 2%. What this chart tells me is transitory still lives. This was it was one year ago at this meeting when Paul tried to, you know, bury the word transitory. Okay, it's Voldemort. We're not allowed to say it, but we all still believe it. And that's what this chart shows me is that we all still believe that this inflation is ultimately transitory. That it is going to dissipate back to 2% in a year or two to be done with Forever Now, why is that important? Because what I've argued is Jay Powell does not give that long-term speech. What is the big picture view of inflation? Is it persistently high? What would happen if you weren't raising 75 basis points? He was kind of asked a question about what would be your signal or how would you know that inflation is unanchored? And I don't even think he gave a very good answer to that one. He kind of dodged that question, at least what I thought. He did as well. But he doesn't give that long-term speech that because we've got these, and I'm going to channel myself here, because we've got these incipient inflationary pressures, persistent inflationary pressures, we have to get interest rates up a lot and stay up a lot. That's what I believe. But I'm not the Fed chairman. He is. He should give that speech. Why doesn't he give that speech? Why is everything an eight-minute, 28-minute second speech about we're not going to pivot or the terminal rate is higher than we think or we're not going to pause? And every other governor gives a speech basically saying we're going to raise 75 at the next meeting. This after they said they were going to get rid of forward guidance. Jack, I know you were worried after they said they were going to get rid of forward guidance about the name of your podcast. Well, we've got more forward guidance now than we've ever had after they got rid of it. The reason I don't think he gives that speech is, again, what we talked about with the dissent. There's no agreement. You could get Leo Brainerd, you could get Mary Daly go out and say, we're going to raise rates 75 basis points at the next meeting because Jay wants that, and therefore they'll say that. But if Jay wants to say, 
I think we've got an elevated inflation problem for the next several years that was going to require elevated interest rates. They don't agree with that. And they're not going to give that speech. And they don't want to be asked about it because they're going to disagree with the chairman. So because there's not an agreement, that speech doesn't get made. If you look at this chart again, everybody thinks inflation is transitory. They can't figure out why the chairman is raising 75 at every meeting. So they constantly conclude he's going to pause. He's going to pivot. He's going to step down. He's going to moderate. He's going to stop. He has to stop. What is he doing? He's lost his mind. There's not, there's, there isn't an inflation problem to warrant this aggressive action. That, to me, is the disconnect that's out there. That's why we have this heightened volatility. That's why markets get disappointed again like we saw today, because they're so desperate for this idea that the Fed is going to pivot. And I'll throw one other one at you, Jack. Um, I'm going to give you a real outside-the-box view here. There's not a lot of bears in the stock market. There's a lot of fully invested bears. There's a lot of people that are worried, worried that this market's going to bottom and it's going to rally 40% until early 24, and I'm not going to be fully into it and you know, with double-levered S&Ps to make a ton of money and that's what they're all worried about. They're all worried about missing the low and the big rally. So therefore, they constantly keep talking about everybody's too bearish. It's the most bearish it's ever been. You know, don't don't get too too negative on the market right now. Um, and even and so we're all worried about this. And this all feeds into this narrative: the Fed's got to stop. The Fed's got to stop. There's no inflation out there. I don't understand what he's doing. He's making a giant mistake. Read Ross Gerber's tweets. Every five minutes, this guy's telling the Fed that they've got to stop. Of course, his fund's down sixty percent because he's in a bunch of, of uh, racy technology stocks, so he needs them to stop. Uh, I like Ross, but come on, Ross, you, 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 you've, you've been Johnny OneNote on this thing and not been right about it all year. Um, and he could attack me if he wants because I just said that about him. But the point is, I think that that's the disconnect. He's not laying out this long-term inflation case. And what this chart is telling us is most people are not in that long-term inflation camp. Now, maybe this chart is right. It could very well be right. Uh, maybe my view on persistent inflation is wrong, sure, but at least make that case. He sort of kind of does a little around the edges when he's asked a question or two about we have to get inflation under control um, today. But why is it even why why is there even a need to get it under control if you think it's going back to two percent in eighteen months? Yeah, uh, uh, Jim, you're you're really preaching to the choir here. I, I think for folks watching at home. If they you know or see this chart, they they zoom in on this chart. They can actually see in those colored lines some tweets from the summer of 2021 of people saying that uh, you know don't you know about a rental car? If, if you if you take out rental car inflation, actually CPI is at, is at zero. Um, but Joseph, the speech or that, housing inflation or, or gasoline or you know stand on your head and twivel three times and there is no inflation. Yes, we've been through all of this for the last 18 months. Yeah, yeah. So so Joseph, the point that uh, Jim is making, the speech that Jim wants Powell to make. Of, hey, actually, we need uh, substantially high real interest rates for a long time. Not this whole five-year real rates where it's based on a, a what the market is projecting for inflation, which is very often wrong as it has been over the past two years. But actual, the Fed, we need the Fed funds rate higher than core PCE. 
And yesterday's guest on uh, Forward Guidance, Nick Timrose, he asked that very same question to Jay Powell today. And uh, Powell's I want to I want to hear your your take on Powell's uh, answer to that. And I also think that Jim's chart here of showing exactly that about where current uh, U.S. Treasury rates are relative to the year-over-year core PCE, which is which is in black. So we need all those colored lines to be above the black line for for there to be real spot rates at the very shortest end of the curve, the the overnight rate. Um. So yeah, Joseph, take it take it where you want. So for, I think the Jim's graph about how inflation forecasts have been so, so wrong is one of my favorite charts. <laughs> it just shows that the people, this establishment just doesn't know anything about inflation. So if you go to economist school, what they'll tell you is that, you know, if you have a credible Fed, inflation is always going to go down at 2%. Why? Because the Fed is credible. So that's why if you're a PhD economist, all the charts you draw, all the models you have, have inflation going back down to 2%. And as that chart shows, you know, that hump, until we do that, that hump to get there, it just gets larger and larger. I think part of the reason that why Chair uh, Powell can't really say things like that is because most people in the Fed are PhD economists. What's different is that Fed isn't, that Chair Powell isn't. He's uh, from industry. He's a lawyer by training. And I remember when he first became Fed chair, he kind of viewed those models as for reference only. He kind of understood as someone coming from industry that those models aren't, aren't all that useful. I think over the years, he maybe became more persuaded by those models. If you recall, uh, when inflation was transitory, he was basic, when he was telling people that inflation was transitory, he was relying heavily on those models. And now he's come back to where he started. He's becoming to realize more and more that, you know, these guys, they don't really know anything about inflation. So inflation comes down when, uh, when it comes down. So I'm going to look at the actual data. And so I'm going to keep hiking. And the, if you're still a PhD, if you're a PhD economist, you still have that view that, you know, uh, inflation is, is transitory, basically, as that chart shows. So I, I really think this is just a difference in, in worldview. And part of the reason why we're in this huge mess is because the establishment view, the stuff that you learn in e economics school is probably just completely wrong. Um, so when it comes to your question, Jack, about Nick Timario's asking about whether or not the Fed has to raise Fed funds above PCEs and sets, uh, I, I think my, my sense is that, you know, Chair Powell noted that it's something he looks at, but it wasn't very a strong answer. You know, he's more like, oh, we look at this. We also look at many other things. I, I didn't feel like it was um, like a, a very clear answer. Uh, I think from, from other conversations, he's also noted that he wants uh, basically everything on the curve to be positive in terms of real rates. And um, we're, we're not there yet on, on, the, on, the, on the short end. But getting there. You know, he did he did talk about that in the September meeting, this this whole this same concept. He was a little bit more emphatic about that, that he wanted to see all those colored lines are the three months to the 30 year yield. He wants to see all of those above the black line. Now, there's some hope that the black line core PC will come down a little bit, too, and kind of meet it in the middle. <clears throat> but, you know, if, if uh, the little gray part of that chart is the Cleveland Fed now cast and it's got it out to the end of November, still above five percent through the end of November at this point. So if it's going to start coming down, it's probably not going to be till next year. But he was a little bit more emphatic about it uh, uh, last, you know, at the last press conference than he was um, at this one. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a little confused by it because he, you know, he was saying it's so much one way and then kind of, you know, waffled a little bit on Timoros's question this time. Yeah, for those of you who, who are listening, so uh, Jim's chart shows that we are we are kind of quite a ways from everything being above five percent PCE. So 
probably PC will come down a little bit in the future, and I guess the Fed will keep hiking. There we go. Joseph, throughout this year, you've been very worried about bond market liquidity, which has steadily deteriorated throughout this year. The, bank, uh, the, the UK gilt market had an implosion that required the Bank of England to intervene in late September. And you were worried that, you know, that, that could come to our shores, to the, to the American shores. However, over the past few weeks, you know, I mean, you've been talking about this Treasury buyback program where the Treasury would issue shorter term bills to buy back longer term uh, uh, bonds for, for U.S. Treasuries. That's where all the, the, the illiquidity and chaos is. Uh, and you actually said, hmm, you know, like, yes, there's this huge problem that I've been tracking and, you know, the, tra- the problem is appearing, but there's a solution. It's the Treasury buyback program. Everything's going to be okay. And even as of today, as yesterday, you, you seemed like you had faith in this. But I know that you know, just as the Fed releases its minutes from its FOMC meetings, uh, the Treasury releases the minutes from its funding meetings, and that came out uh, uh, today. And I'm actually going to read from an ex- exact quote where uh, the Treasury considered a Treasury buyback for a variety of use cases, including liquidity support and cash management, yada, 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 but that the Treasury has not made any decision about whether or how to implement a buyback program. So basically, if the buyback program is coming, it's not coming until 2023. What's your reaction to that? How significant uh, is that? Um, My sense is they're not really taking this problem seriously enough. And maybe if you're a government actor, usually you don't want to act preemptively. Usually it makes more sense for something to break and then you come in and save your day. Uh, I, I don't really know. Um, but another interesting thing is that they also revised up their borrowing for the, for the coming months. So they're going to be issuing more debt as well. So I think this treasury liquidity problem is not going to get better. If you have continually high issuance from primary deficit, from QT, you have the Fed hiking. So I, I think that that's... that's um, it still remains pretty fragile. Uh, my sense, though, is that if there's something that breaks in the bond market, you know, we had some cracks in the UK gilt market, it'll probably crack somewhere else before it cracks in, uh, in the treasury market. Maybe we have something, let's say, BTPs in the eurozone or something like that cracks, forces someone to do something, and then the treasury market benefits from that. So uh, that that's what I think could happen. But if, if eventually, though, something somewhere is... Someone, someone's bond market, I think, is going to crack simply because the, the issuance is just so high and there's not enough. I don't think there's not enough marginal borrowers to marginal buyers to to absorb all that. So Governor Waller actually had a very interesting comment. He thinks that liquidity in the treasury market will come back when um, when the yields get high enough, which is which makes sense, really. But you just don't really know where that is. And between then and now, you know, that's a. Uh, it could be a lot higher, and that could cause a lot of losses, could cause a lot of financial distress to market participants. So a couple of things. Um, since this is YouTube, I, I, I'm going to engage in a little bit of hearsay. Uh, I talked to somebody this morning after the Treasury refunding announcement came out that knows some of the players. And I asked, does that mean then that the earliest we're going to get a refunding announcement is the February refunding announcement. And they said pretty much yes. So there's not going to be in the next 90 days any kind of a buyback announcement. By the way, your fun trivia question, the last time the Treasury bought back anything was April 22, 2002, 20 years ago. And that was because we were running a surplus and Greenspan was worried that we were going to run out of Treasuries and they were buying them all back at that point. What's a surplus? That didn't quite... (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say they quite work out that way. We still have treasuries. We didn't run out of them like we thought we were going to 20 years ago. But what I think is happening here is in August, there's this, there's this animal called the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee. It is a committee largely of dealers and some hedge funds that get together once a quarter at the Treasury and advise them on the efficient distribution of, of Treasury securities to fund the U.S. government. The debt managers at the Department of Treasury that attend this meeting with them view them with a little bit of skepticism. These are a bunch of dealers and hedge funds. They're here to tell me that what policies they need the Treasury to do to make sure that their profits are maximized, not what is in the best interest of funding the U.S. government. That's the skepticism that you get. In August, August, three months ago, they gave a presentation and said, liquidity is bad. You need to start thinking about buybacks. My understanding is the debt managers are viewing that a little bit skeptically. Oh, you know, these are dealers. They overstate that. What they really want is they want us to bid up a bunch of securities on their portf- on their balance sheets that they can sell to us at profits. That's kind of the cynical take that they have with it. I'm sympathetic to that cynical take. But in this case, I'm more with you, Dave, uh, Joseph. I think there is a liquidity problem. And I think that if they think that they could wait another 90 days and then announce the beginning of a program. Uh, I, I use uh, the original Top Gun. There was that famous line in the original Top Gun where they had the final battle and they said, the catapult is broken. We'll have another plane in the air in 10 minutes. And he said, BS, this is going to be over with in two. If the f- Treasury thinks you're going to wait 90 days to give you a, a re- buyback to help fix a liquidity problem, the liquidity problem is going to be in 30 days. It's not going to wait until the middle of next year before we have a liquidity problem. And so they are really rolling the dice here that there is going to be no problem. Given that this Fed has just said the terminal rate's going higher and markets had bad reactions and if interest rates keep going up and keep stressing markets, we could be a lot closer to something breaking than those debt managers do. So I get it. You want to view everything that a well-heeled hedge fund manager is going to tell you of what is the best that the what is the best thing the Treasury could do to issue bonds when their their private plane is paid for by buying those bonds that the Treasury issues. So I get it. You can view them skeptically. But in this case, I do think there is a legitimate liquidity problem. And by just ignoring it for another 90 days may not be the wisest of policies by the Treasury debt managers. And we'll see what happens as we go forward. Yeah, the 10 years above four again. And like Jim mentioned, term rates being guided higher, issuance is exploding higher. So, you know, there's really no reason why the 10 years is not going to continue to go higher. And that stresses the financial system. Yeah. And Jim, it's possible that the cynical take about those hedge fund managers is true. The reason that they're making this complaint is because they want the uh, securities that they hold to be liquid and bid up in value. But it also can be true that if there is no intervention, that there there could really something uh, could break in the financial system. Yeah, two things could be true at once. That, that Their cynical take is they want, here's a bunch of securities uh, debt managers at the Treasury. Please bid them up so I could make more money because guess 
gas is going up to fill up my private plane. It's very, it's very expensive <laughs> right now. But at the same time, the, the reason that these securities are not going up in value is there's a legitimate liquidity problem. And if it gets worse and worse, something can break. And real quick, my, my line I like to tell everybody about something can break. The bond market is too big, too complicated, and too opaque for anybody to tell me what is going to break. But when you look at the liquidity, you look at the high volatility, you look at rates going up or the total return losses, it is a market that is under extreme stress. Just like no one should have been able, no one told me, nor should they have been expected to tell me the day the mini budget came out in the UK, oh, that's it, we've just killed the, the liability-driven investing schemes of UK pensions. It's too big, it's too complicated, um, you know, and so we don't know. But we do know that when rates go up and liquidity is this bad and volatility is this high and you keep stressing these markets, something somewhere will snap. And I don't know what it's going to be. And I don't even think Jamie Dimon could tell us what it's going to be either. But I can tell you my antenna is up that we're going to keep pressuring these markets and somewhere something will be a problem. So, yes, two things can be true at once. These dealers are just telling you what they want in order to make more profits. But they could also be right at the same time that there is a liquidity problem as well. Jim, Jim, you also have a really good chart you post on Twitter a lot about the total losses in the bond market year to date. And I think we need to get that in this podcast as well, because that chart just says it all. It's been a historic, historic route in the bond market. There's a lot of people losing a lot of money. A lot of money basically went poof this year. Yes. As a matter of fact, credit to Michael Hartnick at Bank of America. They've recalculated a version of that chart back to 1700. Yes, 1700. The world, the government bond markets. And they say that 2022 is the fourth worst year ever, the worst year since 1920, 102 years ago, and only 1865 and 1720, the South Sea bubble, for those of you that are into financial history, have been worse. So this is completely off the rails. And what that chart also tells us is another thing. What happens with a lot of investing schemes is they're based on the current environment. What was the environment to the pandemic? Low rates, 1% rates, negative rates in Europe, low inflation, uh, a Fed that was your friend. Remember that when Paul talked about automatic pilot and trying to uh, reduce the balance sheet in December of 2018, the market threw a fit for four days. And then we had the Powell pivot. He turned around and he pivoted that fast after that. So the market was always under this impression that rates are going to be at 1% forever and nothing is going to change that. We can't make enough yield off of that. So what do we do? We introduce leverage. We introduce derivatives to try and juice returns. Well, now we've got inflation. Now we've got huge sell-offs. That is putting things under pressure. Who has been juicing returns among the most? Liability-driven investing in the UK. And they blew up the worst to date. And so what that tells me is what, you know, the, a lot of what, whether you're talking about risk parity or the 60, 40 portfolio or, you know, liability driven investing with derivatives is a big thing in Canada too, that all of these things were based on an environment of low stable rates, low stable inflation, the great moderation in the economy that no longer exists. So all of these schemes are going to be problematic as we move forward. And right now, I don't see or hear a lot of people saying, you know, the 60-40 portfolio or risk parity, 
we have to get rid of this scheme because it's not going to work from here on out. No, it's more like we just got to hold on a little bit longer and then inflation will go back to 2% and everything will be as it was. And that's a prescription for a market that is destined to have a real financial accident. I agree completely. (laughs) And I think it's so exciting too. (laughs) um, I, I agree. I agree because I'm a guy who's been in the bond market for 30 plus years. And believe me, you know, five or 10 years ago, wow. God, the most boring place in the world. There's no yield. There's no action. It's, it's you know, you got to get out of the bond market. It's nothing. Well, now the bond market's having its day in the sun again. It's liar's poker 2.0 all over again, right? In that everybody cares about the bond market. Now, at some point, they won't care about it again because that's the way that financial cycles work. But it is very interesting right now. Right. So, so Jim, as you said, and Joseph, as you've been saying all year, the raising interest rates reduces the value of bonds. So it imposes losses, huge losses in this case on the financial system. The question is who bears those losses? And, you know, let's say I uh, have a lot of bonds. I can sort of hedge my interest rate risk by getting into an interest rate contract with Jim, let's say, but now, so I don't have that loss, but now Jim has that loss. So you can, it's like a hot potato. You can pass the loss around, but you really can't make the loss disappear. So I guess who's going to be left with the losses is my first question. And the second is the, the d- dynamic of force selling. Like, okay, yes, you know, tens of trillions of dollars of wealth has been, uh, 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 it's gone poof, to use your phrase, Joseph. But really the, the real terror that you see in the market is when you have force selling where I have to sell my bond in order to meet my redemption. And then that causes the price to go down even further. And then someone else has to sell their bond. So uh, yeah, who's going to bear the losses? And secondly, where else do you see pockets of that sort of reflexive selling? Jim, you mentioned that liability-driven investment, LDI, is, is in Canada. Joseph, let's, let's start with you and then Jim. So we all bear that bear those losses. I mean, uh, for example, a lot of who buys who owns a lot of bonds of Social Security. <laughs> so, um, you know, your standard 60-40 portfolio, your standard target day fund, if you work for a, for a company you're in your 401k, we all bear those losses. And, I, you know... Jack, in your in your example, let's say someone borrowed money to buy bonds, so they're a levered investor. You know, your assets declined. Eventually, you get margin called. That's for selling. That's kind of what happened in the UK as well. Uh, what surprises me is that we've had all this destruction in value, but the market's still okay. We we haven't had an accident yet, um, both in the stock market and, and in the bond market. It seems like you know, so someone in the UK blew up, but so far it seems like it's. It's been common. I that surprises me a bit, but um, you know that apparently, according to Paul, that gives him confidence to soldier on. So, uh, we'll, we'll, I th- my guess is we'll eventually get to a point where we where we see distress in a more visible way. So I agree with you um, that the markets have held up so far, but they also did till September of two thousand eight until we got the Lehman advantage. They also did in crypto until the Terra blockchain failed. When you start getting these failures in markets, that is usually the end of the cycle. When you get to the forced selling stage, it doesn't happen in the beginning or the middle of the cycle. It happens at the end. And really what happens at the end is there's a lot of people sitting on unrealized losses, hoping things will turn around and hoping it will get better. And when they start to realize it isn't going to get better, and it's a matter of survival to just get what you can and take the losses and move on, that you get the forced selling, that you get that final capitulation in the market. Since we're on a crypto channel, I'll remind everybody, 
That's what happened earlier this year. The Terra blockchain failed in May. You know, $50 billion of Luna and UST went to zero in a matter of days. And, and up until that moment, what did we hear about the crypto space? It was resilient. It was anti-fragile. No one failed. Prices fell. We marked them down. People were liquidated in maker vaults and everything seemed to work as it did. Then we had the Terra blockchain break and we opened the gates of hell. We had Three Arrows Capital. We had Voyager Digital, um, you know, and we had a whole bunch of other failures along the way. And we had ETH and Bitcoin price. ETH price went to under $900. Bitcoin went down to $17,000, $16,000 on a, on a massive capitulation move. And it's been meandering sideways ever since. So I agree with you, Joseph, that, yeah, it is it is comforting that this hasn't happened yet. But usually when you get that failure, it's it's going to be ugly for the next little bit. And then the move's over. And that next little bit, it's not, you know, don't buy on the, the minute you get that failure because you can still get half the price movement in a very short period of time. But yet what I'm trying to say is when you get that failure, that is a capitulation move. I am sitting on losses now and the losses get worse as rates go up, but I still believe everything's going to rebound in 23 and I'll be okay. It's when I, when I give up, no, it's not going to rebound in 23 and I'm cooked and I better get out with something before I'm completely bankrupt, that that's when you get that capitulation move. And that happens at the end of the cycle. It doesn't happen near the beginning or the middle. So maybe we're not quite at the end of the cycle, or maybe that's still to come. We'll, we'll see. Or maybe this is going to be one of these cycles where we'll be able to avoid that bullet. But uh, that's why I'm not sh completely shocked we haven't seen it yet. Just signals to me that we're not at the end of the cycle. Brilliant. Well, guys, uh, we'll have to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for watching. People should check out, uh, Jim, your work at Bianco Research, and that also is your handle on Twitter. Joseph, you can find your work at fedguy.com. On Twitter, you are at fedguy12. People should buy the book, which I am holding up proudly for the second day in a row. Uh, Joseph, I'll, I'll leave you with the, the final word. Uh, take us wherever you want. Uh, what, 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 what should we take away from this conversation? You know, I think this has been a great conversation. From, from what I focus on is, is the point Jim made earlier, is that we, we're probably getting to a point where there's going to be more dissent within the FOMC. And so how the Fed proceeds, there's going to be more of a political dimension. So we're going to have to focus on the political aspect. What is the White House saying? What is the senator? What is the Senate? What are senators saying and so forth? It's going to be much more difficult. Um, back in the days of Volcker, there was tremendous public support for him doing what he was doing. I don't know if we have the same level of public support. So for me, it's possible that sometime next year, maybe there's not enough political support and we either pause or we even take a step down. So that's what I watch, watch for. Jim, what do you think? I completely agree. It's easy for Jay to stand there and act. And I agree with you. He did a very good job at the press conference. He acted confident. He acted in control because we're printing 250,000 jobs a month. You keep hiking rates and we're at negative jobs. It's a whole different ballgame. You think Senator Warren is, is on your case now? Wait till we get negative jobs and wait till you see how they're going to be on your case then. So, yes, and you think you've got some dissents now that you can get rid of with uh, cumulative uh, tightening in the statement and they won't dissent. Wait till we get negative jobs and your job is going to get infinitely more difficult 
as we move forward. There we go. Yeah, Jim, I like your phrase, unhappy doves. We'll, we, we'll have to be uh, paying close attention to those unhappy doves. Uh, gentlemen, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, have a good one. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, you can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. That's uh, Podbean as in, on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.